I hate to interrupt all the good fellowship. Look what I did. You know, I struggled with those one, two. I struggled with those glasses last week, so I brought me a new Bible. Big one there. Accidentally. Let's uh, get ready to go live around the world here. We're going to go into 1 Timothy 2. I'll pick up verse 8 after we pray. We welcome all of you that have joined us wherever you're at in the world tonight. And if any of you that will get this podcast in the next few hours or days, uh, welcome all of you that have been watching us on Wednesday mornings, getting up with the chickens. Uh, or watching us at some point throughout the day or the week with the teaching on the Holy Spirit. So uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into chapter 2 and verse 8. Lord, we thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your word. You've magnified your word above your name. There's nothing greater, Lord. You are the word made flesh and dwelt among us. You, Jesus, and the word are one and the same. And we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word as a light and a guide. And we just pray, God, that as we study your word tonight, Lord, that you'll enrich us and give us greater understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and without doubt. So there's a challenge there to all of us about how we should approach the Lord, how we should seek Him. The Greek word for prayer means to seek earnestly. In most cases, I will therefore, men, seek me everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubt. So these are the things that God is charging us with as we pray or as we seek Him, I put some things on the board ahead of time here, but as we seek Him, He's wanting us to have clean hands, right? He wants us to have no wrath. The wrath of man, He said, does not work the righteousness of God. Outburst, He calls them. Uh, he calls outburst actually sin in one of the lists He gives us. <clears throat> and then... He says, I would that you would lift up holy hands without wrath and without doubt. So no doubt, no wrath, holy hands. Doubt is the opposite of faith, right? Uh, James said, whoever is double-minded, they're not going to receive anything from the Lord. So doubt is the contrary or the opposite of faith or what we know to be pisteo, right? Pisteo is the verb form of faith undergirds all believing in the New Testament. Faith is a verb, right, primarily. And so verbs do what? They show action. And your hands are representative of your lifestyle. So let me take this big two-ton Bible and take you to, I believe it's Psalm, Psalm chapter 15. Let's look at Psalm 15. And see what the Lord says here. Psalm. <clears throat> I've not used the Bible this big in a long time. So I had to put it in the back of my truck to get it here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Psalm 15. Psalm 15. I went past. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? That's the place where God dwells. Who shall dwell in the holy in thy holy hill? He that walks uprightly, or walketh uprightly, and works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. He that backbites not with his tongue, nor doth evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a, a vile person or a wicked person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. Let me read that from here. I've got all kinds of books up here tonight. Wrote some stuff there on the board that we'll get to in just a moment. But in Psalm chapter 18, the question is asked, chapter 15, I'm sorry, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? 
Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor, does, or nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, you made a commitment that wound up working against you, but you kept your commitment anyway. It's a pretty strong conviction there, isn't it? In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put his money out to usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Clean hands, pure heart, somebody who's going to live with God. Over the years, I've dealt with a lot of folks in different situations. I, I, I kid and say I've heard everything twice. But one of the guys that I dealt with wound up going to prison. And he wound up going to prison for something that was uh, it's, it's, it's extremely bad. Except uh, most of the people I've dealt with that's wound up in prison or come out of prison or whatever, they should have been there. But this was one of the guys in the system that got falsely accused, and, and um, he, he wouldn't lie. In fact, uh, he could have got out in 18 months. And I went to see him. I said, I hear they've offered you a plea that if you'll confess to doing what they've said, that you'll get out in 18 months. And he said, yeah, that's what's on the table. And he said, but Matthew, he said, if I do that, I'm lying. Now, I don't know. I don't even want to ask you this question. But you can just think about it. How many of us would have spent eight and a half more years in prison when you could have walked that very day? He spent eight and a half more years in prison because he would not lie. And we read about stuff like that in the Bible, and, it, and that's one of the modern-day examples, but think about that for a minute. All you have to do is say, I did it. You get to go back to your life. I'm not even asking you to, think, to just even be hard on yourself or challenge yourself. I'm not asking you that. Just think about that for a minute, what that sounds like. What about this? The guy that Jesus confronted, he said, I, Jesus kept throwing things at him, right? He said, I've done it. I've done that since my youth. I've done it. And Jesus knew the one thing that would cause him to stumble, didn't he? He knew what it was, so he went after it. He said, sell everything you've got and give it away. He went after it. And that's how the Lord works in our lives. He goes after that thing that he knows would hold us back, and he comes after that. We saw a little bit of that on Sunday morning with some of the stuff we talked about. How many, of, how many people do you know if the court system said, we're going to let you go. Time served. All you have to do is admit you did it. I'll never forget that day. And I walked out of there thinking, wow. What kind of integrity is that? He could have knocked. He stayed in prison for eight and a half more years. And he could have walked after a year and a half. But to have walked, he would have had to tell a lie. Now, lying is extreme in our world today. It's everywhere. It's, not, it's no longer called lies. It's like everything else. We water it down so we don't feel as bad about it. Now it's misspeaking. Right? But it's lies. I often wonder why God was so hard on liars in the, in the book of Revelation. He didn't say the bad liars or the ones that tell the big whoppers. Is that what you used to call them? Now we eat whoppers. We used to tell big whoppers. Right? But he said all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. All liars. Now I know why he said that. You see what lying's done to this world? 
if we could just take that one sin out, it would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? That one, it's sin, folks. It ain't misspeaking. It ain't little white lies. He said all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Man, there's a lot of bad sin out there, but I thought, man, you really hammered that, Lord. Well, you just, I mean, you didn't exclude any, I mean, you went after every single liar. And I thought, because the way our world's turned out in the last 25 years, I thought, I see why you're that way. And think about this, if you're God, why would you want a liar in heaven? And that's kind of made us all a little bit numb. We're used to it, aren't we? We're used to people lying. And we don't really get upset about it unless they lie to us. Right? It's not that big a deal until they lie to us. And I, I, now we see all the fallout. It causes wars. I mean, it causes all kinds of stuff. Lying, lying, lying. And God's pretty adamant about that. He said, all liars shall have their part. So these are the kind of people that God wants in heaven. People here that he lists, that he talks about, or he don't really list, he talks about here in Psalm chapter 15. And so as God's recruiting you, you know what he's recruiting you to be first? A worshiper. Recruit's not a good word. As he adopts you into his family, the first thing he's after is for you to become a worshiper. What did Jesus say when they said something to him? He said, my father is looking for a good preacher that'll tell the truth. He didn't say that, did he? My father's looking for some good singers and some good musicians. No, he didn't say that. My father is looking for worshipers, people who will worship him. And this goes along with this verse that Paul's using here that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now that's an outward dimension. That's a excuse me, that's an inward dimension. We know we're commanded to sing and praise and all that and the fruit of our lips. But that's that can be mimicked. What God's after is something internal that it, that we're committed to the Holy Spirit and truth because our worship's uh, affected by that. Our life's affected by it, everything about us. So Paul is kind of stressing the same thing with a little different way of saying it, that Jesus said, My, I would that men everywhere would lift up holy hands with no wrath and no doubt. And I, we all have to guard against that because the world is constantly bombarding us with stuff that would make us less holy, that would cause us to slip into worldliness, that would cause us to be angry, and that would cause us to doubt God's Word. So he's looking for those people who will worship him in spirit and truth. Some of you heard me teach on this before, but I'll just briefly talk about this. We have three archangels in the Bible, Gabriel, <coughs> Michael, and Lucifer. Lucifer got crossways with God, he got kicked out of heaven, and because of these three archangels that are underneath the, the, the Trinity, they have high, they've had and have high authority. So when Lucifer gets kicked out, I guess the third of angels that he had charge over went with him. We know the third of the angels went with him, exactly how that all went, if they all just, if they took a vote or whatever, or they just left. So he brought, and those are what we now call demons and evil spirits that are working alongside of Satan. So when we read the scripture, Gabriel is used as a messenger, as an announcer. And we see Michael is used as a warrior. And we have evidence in Ezekiel and Job and another place in the Old Testament that, that Satan is more, was a worshiper. Talks about his pipes and tabrets inside of him. So what did God do? He lost his worship team. He kept his warriors. He kept his messengers. But he lost his worship crew. And then God is, if you can have this, God is replacing his worship people, worship angels, with us. Because he said, I'll fight your battles. I'll fill your mouth. 
but I want you to worship me. That's what God's after. We're, we're, and that's why Satan hates us so vehemently because we're going to wind up taking what he, he lost. We're going to replenish heaven with worshipers, right? We are worshipers. We're, and so if you can see how this plan has unfolded over the years, it's strange to me that Jesus would say that, you know, because we're so work-oriented, right? We're so, Mary wasn't. She understood it, right? Martha was so work-oriented, she, she, she missed what was really important. But Mary got it, and you see people get it, but you're thinking, what do you, what do you need, God? I know what you need, God. You need a, a Sunday school superintendent. That's what you need, God. You need a, you know, a lot of the things that we've tagged on to the church was never a part of the early church. We've had to tag so many, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to make the devil mad and probably some churches mad. We, we've had to tag a lot of things on the church because the family ain't in their job. Right? They don't teach their children the word. They don't have devotion time with them. They let the television raise their children, and now it's the phone or the computers or whatever. They don't interact with them. How many times do we get commanded as parents to instill these things? And that's why God basically called Abraham. It was one of the main reasons he said that he raised him up was because he would be faithful to hand down the things that God had given him to the next people coming behind him. So a lot of things... Man, I can tell you, I grew up, there were no youth pastors. There were no children's pastors. I'm not against those things. There were none of that. But I had a really wonderful man who taught in Sunday school, and he loved us. And we had to go in church, adult church, and act right. Or you got took outside. And that was not good. <laughs> but a lot of things, and I'm not saying we're wrong for doing that, I'm just saying you can see the breakdown of the family and the culture, and now the church is trying to pick up the slack. But I'm going to tell you all something, and this is no offense because we've got good people working here, but there ain't no youth pastor will ever take the place of daddy or mommy. I mean, that, that's the way God intended it. He created the family before he created the church. And now we're trying to come behind and, and pick up the slack and praise God for it because I've seen youth come into the church over the last 30 years being a pastor myself and then bring their families in. We're doing a lot of things in this earth because we're trying to make up slack where sin has devastated our world. And it's devastated the family. And so it's sad, but that's, that's where we're at. So he said, I want you to lift up uh, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So, Paul is not speaking against a woman looking nice. The problem we have, and Peter talks about this as well, is that we live in, we live in a world, and it was, it was even back then, where it started in the garden, right? It was pleasant to the eyes. And you can be drawn and start thinking that it's the outward stuff that's important. Most people live that way. They live like the outward things are the most important thing. They live temporal lives. They're confined to the temporal world. And they don't have their mind on spiritual things. The Bible tells us to have our mind on spiritual things, not on earthly things. They'll come and go. God will provide what we need. It's not wrong to be blessed. You can look in from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. People were blessed financially in every way. Lydia, Solomon, David, I'm sure Peter and those guys, probably they had good businesses when they walked away from everything not wrong to be blessed but it's wrong to get caught up in the blessing and forget the blesser 
In fact, Jewish women were very, they were adorned. They, the Jewish people were some of the most blessed people in the world at one time and still are in some ways. But they, they were, and, and a Jewish woman would put on makeup for six months or a year getting ready for her wedding day. And I know it seems like sometimes they do that in the morning. They're in there for six months or a year. But, but she wanted, when she, on her wedding day, she wanted to be a perfect bride or as perfect as she could be so she could cover every spot and wrinkle and blemish that when she walked down to her groom. There's a parallel to that in the New Testament, right? The teaching of the Holy Spirit about he, he's the, he brings us the cosmetic. He wants to present a bride to the sun that's without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. So there's so many beautiful parallels from the Jewish stuff that they did in the Old Testament to the New. But if you think, and Peter kind of drives this a little further, if you think that it's the outward thing, that if you're not pretty on the inside, then you're not pretty, basically what the Bible's saying. You may think you're pretty, but if you're not pretty internally, then it doesn't matter what you do outwardly. You're not going to be pretty in the eyes of God. And so there, there's not, it's not this outward stuff that should be the goal for us, but that which is proper that we should be godly. That's what he's really talking about here. All of us should be godly. And another passage in this book that we'll read, he says, well, let me just skip on over here and I'll come back here in just a second. In, in chapter 4 of this same book, he says, talking to us as Christians, if you instruct the brethren, chapter 4, verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished with the words of faith and with the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane old wives' fable, fables and exercise yourself to, toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little. All right? Now, we got a, we got a craze in our world about preserving this natural man, right? There's a balance to that. I do some, I take care of my body, uh, but you can't be overboard with it. You see, here's what he's saying. He says, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness, and, and actually the Greek says it profits for a little while, because I don't care how good you feel today, you're going to die. Unless the Lord comes back, we're all going to die. I don't mean to be a doomsdayer, but you're going to die sooner or later. So bodily exercise profits for a little while. That's how the Greek says it. He says, but godliness is profitable for all things. Why? Because godliness is not only this life, but it's about the next life, right? It's all, uh, all preparation. For godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. I'm thinking stuff I don't want to say. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. They don't labor and suffer reproach because they have a good exercise routine. <laughs> they labor and suffer reproach because they pursue godliness. Godliness is not popular anymore. Holiness, godliness, being like Christ. Because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men especially of those who believe these things command and teach. I believe, if I didn't believe this, I wouldn't be as radical as I am with my faith. I believe that God has my days numbered. I believe it. That takes a lot of fear out of life. When you believe that, when you believe that God has your days numbered, now we can shorten them if we get in rebellion, I understand that, and there seems to be evidence that we can lengthen them if we... Uh, if we do certain things as well, one of them is obey your parents. You might want to remind your child of that every day. Say, so you want to live to be 92? Get in there and do the dishes. <laughs> Take the trash out. Uh, that, that's the first thing come out of my grandmother's mouth. She did die, though. She eventually died. She died at 95, but she said, if you ask her, if somebody asked her how she lives long, first thing she says, I obey my parents. And my grandmother did not have a treadmill. And my grandmother eat whatever she wanted to eat. 
Now, she ate good because she grew most of it, right? She had, she had corns and beans from the 1800s, I think. <laughs> but you, you see what he's not saying taking care of yourself is a bad thing, but he's saying there's something better than that, and that's to be godly. That's the, if you want to help your physical health, your mental health, living like God teaches is the best thing you can do. And then you can throw in a treadmill on top of that. That's what I do. But there are lots of people that live long lives that have never spent a day in a gym. And they eat lard. And 14 eggs a day. This is funny. My grandmother, she's that way, old-fashioned. Somebody come up and told her, said, I've joined the gym. And my grandmother said, let me get this straight. You pay somebody to mow your grass, and you went to join a gym. She said, get out there and mow your grass. That's how you get some exercise. <laughs> so there's, there is profit for a little while in taking care of your body as best as you can. But that's not the main thing. The main thing, as Paul's teaching us here, is godliness. So let's go back to chapter 2. He says, uh, <clears throat> Professing godliness with good works, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and self-control. Now, I'll come back to this stuff if we get time. So let's talk about this for a minute. This whole mess that we're exploding in in our world started with this role confusion. Now, who do you think's behind that? <laughs> now we don't even know which bathroom to go in. I'm not saying you and I don't know that, but I'm just saying it's all come about because of role confusion. Now, your old King James Bible is going to use a word that's not in this new King James, and you won't hear me say this often, but it's probably a better word than what you have in any other text you may be carrying tonight. Usurp is the King James. That's how the King James says it here, uh, the old King James. He says, uh, <clears throat> I suffer not a woman to teach her to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. And then a lot of people will take these verses and they'll say, well, it's caused the way the culture was then. Well, you could say that if he didn't add the rest of that. He's going all the way back to the garden. Well, you actually couldn't say that because it don't say that. It don't say the culture. He goes all the way back to the garden. For Adam was formed, then Eve. All right? Now, he kind of, I mean, he's, it sounds like he's coming after Eve here, but I'm going to bring some balance to that. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So it's all about order and authority here, all right? Because we're gonna, we know women in the Scripture that God used to be his mouthpiece, like Deborah and different things like that. Lydia, ones in the New Testament. It's about authority and roles, and the devil has done a masterful job about confusing roles and authority. Now, look at us. Look at us. I think one of the most striking things I've seen in a long time, or heard, I, got, I get most of my news on the radio, was when this latest Supreme Court justice, who was a woman, was asked, can you define a woman? And she said she couldn't. That's America. I thought that was Bangkok. But that's America. What? You can't... We all learned that in biology class. If you didn't know it by the time you were a freshman in high school, you knew it then. And so that's all about this. It's all about role confusion and authority. Now, God could have made Eve first, but he made Adam first. It's about an order. It's about authority. So let me give you the definition of usurp. Authentio. Authentio is the Greek word for usurp. 
And it's the same word they translated here differently in most translations. But usurps probably the best word you could find to match this Greek word. <clears throat> it means to exercise power of one's self. Now, even the men are not allowed to do that. We're all under God's authority. A dad can't provoke his children to anger. The Bible teaches that, right? So none of us are really allowed to do that. But it's because God made Adam in his image, and then he made Eve in Adam's image, and now he's got an order established. Now, we can be mad about that, or we can just live under his rule because we couldn't even take the next breath until he didn't give it to us. So, I mean, his authority, it starts with him. There's really no loose cannons down here, or at least there's none that's getting by with it. They're going to give an account to God someday. Dad, mom, president, general in the army, ball coach, teacher, whatever, boss at work. If you'll notice how authority is taught in the New Testament, Paul tells people to submit to the authority even if they're not godly. If you've got a job and the boss has authority, that doesn't mean you have to compromise God's word. That's where we draw the line. But just because you don't like him, and, and, and listen, if I walked away from people who had authority over me every time they cursed, I would still be stuck somewhere in a ditch. Because ball coaches, they don't always say the nice things. People in the mines got a whole different set of rules for talking underground. But I was there as a witness. If I got offended every time somebody used a cuss word, God couldn't have used me. I had bosses who mocked me because I was a Christian, but I was still under their authority. And that's, that's why if you get pulled over by a policeman and he gives you a ticket, you're under his authority. You've got to take it. Don't whine and complain. Let off the gas. If I come to your house and you ask me to take my shoes off, I'm under your authority. I'll take my shoes off. I'll probably take them off anyway. My wife will be there take your shoes off. That didn't sound right. Now I'm under her authority. <laughs> so, uh, but you, we all have levels and spheres of authority, right? If I come into your domain, I, I got to say, if, if Walmart says to shop there from now on, you got to wear swimming trunks, then you need, you're going to have to wear swimming trunks. Or go somewhere else and shop. This is still America, right? Go to Durham's down in Stanford and shop. They wear overalls down there. Whatever, you, people have the right to set their rules, right? And so God has set an authority. And this role confusion is what, what it's caused because the authority has been misconstrued. And he says, uh, uh, it means also to exercise power of oneself, to surpass. You getting the picture here? That's why this word's so important. He's not telling women to go there in a the corner and sit down and shut up. He's telling them there's an, a line of authority here. Don't go into your own self and overstep God's pattern and his line of authority. He says surpass or assume position over. Right? That's what this whole word's trying to, trying to get, a, get across to us. Uh, to have preeminence. Right? If you go back to Deborah... She was begging him to do his job. She didn't... In fact, Deborah was a prophetess, and the word judge, she was a judge during that time. The word judge means somebody, the, and that's what this is all about here. She was a judge, and the Hebrew word for that is den, D-den. And this word den means door. This is a word that's used for judge, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Judges, where Samuel, Samson, and uh, Deborah, and, and Jephthah, and all those guys were used by God. They were never kings, though. Now, there's a difference between a judge and a king. If you'll notice what Samuel did, Samuel never forced anybody to do anything. Neither did Deborah. In fact, Deborah was begging Barak to do his job. And... In fact, Deborah didn't get the glory out of it either. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, she's not mentioned Barak was. But Barak didn't get the credit out of it. Another woman is the one that killed the Sisera. Because, and what, what Deborah was trying to do was hand off the word of God to Barak and encourage him to go. 
and, and he wanted her to go with him because she was God's mouthpiece. And, and I understand that. I understand how that works. Yeah, come on. I mean, if you're telling me what God's saying, will you go with him? I don't have a problem with that, but she was begging him to get out there and do his job. He was supposed to be leading and do his job. And it's all about authority. It's not about what comes out of your mouth. God can use anybody he wants to. And, and, if, and, and Deborah or whoever, Lydia, and, and, and like I say about myself, don't get too high-minded on yourself because God can use donkeys too. And then this Hebrew letter means hand. And this last Hebrew letter means sprouting. And then they go deeper. Door, pathway, hand, leading, sprouting, life. What God used those judges for was not to be a king. The kings came later, right? Because Samuel said, Samuel got him a king, right, with, uh, with Saul. And God wanted to be their king, but they wouldn't have it. And I think you can pester God so much that he'll give you what you ask for. And they said, we don't want a king, or we want a king, we don't want God to be our king, whatever. And God used Samuel to set a king in, and he told them, he said, here's what's going to happen when you get a king. He's going to use his authority on you. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to send them to war. He said, God wants to be your king, but they wouldn't have it. These judges were mouthpieces to show people the way, prophets, they were all prophets, to show people the way, to lead, and, and to show them the path of life, but they never forced anybody into that. that the kings came, and they did. They said, send your 18-year-old son up here. He's taking a test. We're sending him across the pond to fight. That's what a king does, or what we call a president today. So it's all about authority. This usurp is one acting by their own power, authority executed by your own hand, or choosing your own course of action. So that's what he's dealing with here. You cannot be united if you're not united spiritually, right? So if you are united spiritually in Christ, in marriage, one of them, it doesn't just matter the church, it matters in the whole dynamic of a family. You can't have a wife going that way and the husband going that way. And so he, he, that's, that's, that causes all kinds of problems. So I want you to hear these definitions again. The root of this word usurp, let me flip my board back over. The, the root of this word usurp is to... The root of it is pleasing self. The very root of this word in the Greek, which is authenteo, the root of authenteo, you get that? You, hear, you know what word we get from authenteo? Authentic. If God made you a woman, stay one. And be proud of it. You know who's who's heralded more than any other person in the Bible except for Jesus? And they've took it too far, I understand that. But Mary, what kind of woman was that? 16-year-old or close to it saying, whatever you want to do, you can do it with me. And she was taking the risk of getting stoned, being ridiculed, no one believing her, saying, yeah, I'm pregnant, but I've never slept with a man, I'm a virgin. How many people you think bought that? Or even Joseph's side, but especially Mary's. Can you, you, Joseph was going to put her away because he didn't even believe it at first. The Bible said he sought to put her away privately because he loved her. He knew if he made an made a open show up, they'd take her outside the gate and stone her. And then can you imagine Joseph saying, listen, guys, I've not slept with her, but she's pregnant. And they're saying, who's the guy? And he's, well, she's saying that, that it was God overshadowed. The whole, and the guys are like, you're, and you're believing that? Let's put flesh and blood on it. That's real stuff. And, and so finally, God appears to Joseph, right? Says, hey, take her and make her your wife. The, that which is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. But imagine a teenager dealing with that. And now, can you imagine that? Where are the Marys in the world today? We got teenagers who want to jump off bridges because somebody didn't like something they posted on some social media. And you got a woman putting her life on the line as a teenager. Saying, be it unto me. Your, I love her language, your handmaid. I belong to you. You can do whatever you want to with me. That's power. That's power. And she was getting insight before Joseph was. So God's got beautiful roles for us to play. 
But when they get out of whack, what you see on the news media and on our TV is what we get. We got a boy that says he might be a girl. We got a girl that says she'd rather be a boy because the roles are confused. The devil has confused God's authority and his role. How, when's the last time we've heard anything out of Washington, D.C. that's been positive about God? Usually it's negative. When's the last time we've heard somebody in high political power say, we need to talk to God about this? Why don't we all pray as a nation and see if God will help us? They all use prayer as kind of like a catch-all because usually what they're meaning is you pray to Buddha, you pray to Mohammed, who are both dead, by the way, stuck in a grave somewhere. They don't mean beseech the Lord with holy hands and no wrath and no doubt. The one who can do something about it. And so that's, that's the issue with, with, with authority is that it's, it's all coming back to authority. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Because that's where he Paul's referencing. Let's see what happened here. This is all reminded all of us. You all know what happened here. Am I running out of time? I'm running out of time. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. Verse 1. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Right there is where she should have cut him off. And I want to say a word. That's where a lot of Christians need to cut the devil off. You shouldn't stand around and listen to his lies. He's going to start challenging everything God does in your life. If you listen to his lies, he's going to have you backed off in the corner, ready to jump off a bridge yourself. And then he says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not, not eat it, uh, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what a powerful thought. Now, she's, she's, obviously, she knows it. That's what makes this bad. She's not playing in the dark here. We don't know where Adam's at. Maybe he's milking the cows or something, but we don't know. Then a servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's a lie. She just told him what God said, but he starts working the opposite side of it, right? He's the darkness. He's the liar. God is truth. And so she said, uh, the Lord said that if we eat that, uh, then we'll die. Then a servant said to the woman, you're not going to die. Now he's mad at God, and he's envious of God. He desires God's spot. What's that about? authority. He tried to usurp his authority over God. Jesus said he left like lightning. That's how fast he got kicked out of heaven, like a lightning strike. So this is not about gender. It's about God's order of authority. God loves women. He made them. I'm glad God made me a good wife. I wouldn't want to journey through this world without, with her, especially in the kind of calling I've had. I'm thankful for that. But there's an order. And so the uh, devil is going after the one that was made after Adam. He's trying to go after her. And said, so God knows in the day you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing the good and evil. And that's what he wanted to be. He said, I want to be like the Most High. Remember what Isaiah said? I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. That's his desire. When you and I sin, guess, I want you to think about this. When you and I sin, the devil is taking his seed and impregnating us with it. I hope that makes you sick. We're sleeping with Satan. When we give over to sin, we sleep with him. And he impregnates us with his desires. That, I hope that turns you against him. And so, <clears throat> he's, he's putting her against God, right? If, if we could put this in, in modern terms, basically he's saying, Eve, you're not going to die. God's holding out on you. He's not letting you be all you can be because he knows. Look what he says. He says, uh, he says, for God knows in the day you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like him. God, basically, the devil's saying, God don't want you to eat that because he won't, don't want you to be like him. And that was the exact lie. The total opposite of what God had said. And she bought it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave her husband with her and ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they, did, uh, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Then the Lord God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked 
and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Now, again, when God asks a question, he ain't looking for no answer. He already knows the answer. He's just giving them a chance to come clean. He said, I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you? He said, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you should not eat? Then he, the man said, the woman whom you gave me with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The word deceived means he caused me to forget. Ain't that how sin works? You know, you know, don't say it, don't say it. You know it's wrong to say it. And then you, just for a minute, you forget about all the judgment, all the fallout, and you do it. That's how the devil works on all of us. And then it says, <clears throat> the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? Said the serpent to see him. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed uh, more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enemy between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the woman, he said. So prophetically speaking of the Messiah coming. I will, and then he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your, and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. So you women got Eve to thank for that. But as I say before, we don't have any stones to throw at him because we've seen enough out of our own life to know we'd have blown it in the garden too. I have no stones to throw at me. <clears throat> and they shall, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have uh, heeded the voice of your wife. Hers <clears throat> was direct rebellion against the word. His came around to that, but his was affection for her over God. Adam, what... Everybody says, what the preacher thinks. I think Adam might could have, maybe, I don't know, sin had already entered in, so this is hard, but Adam should have said, stop it. We're going straight to God to repent for this. Maybe he could have covered his wife. But his affection, or maybe he knew they were doomed, and he didn't want to be without her. I don't, we don't know. But they're humans, and they've got the same kind of thought patterns we have, and so there's probably a lot going on through his head. He's thinking, oh, my goodness, what's she done? And she's like, it's good. It's good. This snake told me we'd be fine. <laughs> Don't the snake always tell us we're going to be fine? It's going to be fine. Crawl up in here with me. I'll never forget this story. <laughs> never forget this story. Uh, this, they tell. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a true story. It's just a, something to think about. This girl's getting ready to go to the path walk the path and the water and holes at the top of the hill and there's a serpent laying there and the serpent says will you please carry me up there I'm, I can't make it I need some water and she says no I cannot take pick you up you'll bite me and he says no I'm not going to bite you I want water like you have will you please take me to the top of the hill so and she says no she refuses finally he wears her down and so he she picks the serpent up takes him up to the top of the hill and she's about to let him down and he bites her and he said, she said, I thought we had a deal. You wouldn't bite me. She said, he said, I'm a serpent. You don't make no deals with Satan. He's a serpent. And he may show up like an angel of light at Halloween, but he is a serpent. And he bites, and he chokes, and he lies, and he deceives, and he'll come in looking like he's all good and be bad. He's a liar from the beginning, the Bible says. The Bible says he's the father of lies. Now think about that in context of what I started this off with. All liars. There's another reason probably why God don't have any liars in heaven. Because any lie is fathered by Satan. Let that sink down into years for a minute. He is the father of all lies, the Bible says. Abraham's the father of faith. Satan is the father of all lies. So if we tell a lie, Satan has fathered that in us. And that should make us all sick. So it's about authority. He goes on over and he says, Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's sad, isn't it? 
And then the children come along, children that would have possibly been born without knowing sin are born into it. The Bible tells that about all of us, right? And what's the first thing happens? Not or in the first family, I should say. Cain kills his own brother. Kills his own brother. Kills his own brother. Because he had no regard for offerings to the Lord. And though, I don't know, we know at that time God had sacrificed because he made animal skins. So the sacrificing had already started long before the priesthood came. God made atonement for their sins with his sacrifice. He covered them with the animal skins. So we know all this was going on when these boys were around. So here's, here's what I, everybody says what the preacher thinks. Cain probably knew that he should, he should have taken some of the fruit of his vineyards or whatever, traded it to Abel for a sheep because Abel, uh, Abel was keeper of sheep. He knew God required blood sacrifice at this point. And so he just, but instead of doing what he should have done, how many times do you hear, even in your own mind, how many times are you hearing these things that tell you basically just excuse yourself? God understands. Just excuse you. You don't have to be that serious about God. You don't have to be that, that intense about it. And so Cain, for whatever reason, probably should have taken a, a bushel of apples uh, to Abel and said, hey, I need a sheep. I need to go before the Lord today. But for whatever reason, he didn't do what God had asked him. And he gets God's angry at him, and he turns his anger on Abel. That's what's happening in the world today. They're mad because they can't have their way. But they, the world out there that don't know Christ, they can't overthrow God because in Psalm 2, the Bible says, those who try to overthrow him, he who sits in the heaven laughs about it. There's just a couple of times we read in the Scripture where God laughs, and that's one of them. He laughs about the people who think they're going to overthrow him. They can't overthrow God, so they're going to turn their anger toward us who follow him. That's what you see in the world today. And it's going to get worse. It's going to, they, they turn their anger. Some of the illicit things that have been done in the last two weeks in the name of killing babies, I'm just going to call it what it is, in front of church houses is horrendous. It's horrendous. So they're, they know they can't overthrow God. They're going to turn their anger on us. But you know what I say? We ain't backing down one inch. I'm going to stand with God's Word because that's the only thing going to be left. The Bible says heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will last forever. Can we give Him praise? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had in your word. There's so much in here, Lord. It's taking us a, we're taking a slow grind here through Timothy. Uh, and we just want to learn, God. And, and I don't have all the answers, but you do. And I'm going to do my part to study and show myself approved of work, but need not be ashamed, rightly dividing it with your help, Lord. But God, we just pray for strength for all of us. We are living in a world that is doing everything the opposite of what you taught us. And we just pray, God, that we, you'll give us the strength to stand in this kind of world, Lord, to be witnesses for you. And then when the persecution comes, that we'll be willing even to give our lives for the cause of the gospel. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.